0: Amen. Thank you, Colin and Westminster Brass. Please turn in your Bibles to our reading for this morning, Isaiah chapter 45. You can find that on page 605 of your pew Bibles. I encourage you to turn. We'll be reading the first 13 verses. So please follow with me because it's a great picture of another idea of the character of God, what our God is like. Hear now the word of the Lord, Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 13. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know, from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed him, ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts." This is the word of the Lord. Do keep your
1: Bibles open at that passage. We're going to be looking for a moment at the end of chapter 44 and then into the passage we've read in 45. I had a friend in London who worked for a while as a lawyer in a patent, in the patent office there. His task was to ensure that those who invented something had it properly registered so that their rights were enshrined under law. Something similar happens with respect to intellectual property. We have copyright laws to defend the rights of authors and composers to be compensated for their work. One expression you will often see, I think, certainly in the United Kingdom and I think here as well. At the bottom of a product is this, all rights reserved, all rights reserved. And many legal issues and disputes turn on the issue of rights and ownership. The key verse we're looking at this morning is in Isaiah 45 and verse 9, for this is all about a dispute about ownership. Woe to him! who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? You see, at the root of many of our complaints about what's wrong with the world, at the root of many of our, of much of our dissatisfaction with what we read in the Bible, at the root of our own attitude to things when they don't go our way and they disappoint us, is our failure to understand either ourselves on the one hand or God on the other. And here the Lord foresees, predicts, proclaims that there will be a complaint lodged by His own people against Him for the action that He will take On their behalf. It's a very serious word. There is is anger in this word in verse 9. The anger of God at the sheer impertinence of humanity in general and of his own people in particular when they question his wisdom and his ways. God's questions here raise the issue of his divine rights. Of ownership over all that He has made. And this particular dispute described here fits into the general general story of this book of Isaiah, the big idea which regularly is being brought home to us, which is simply this, that it is with God that we have to do. It is with God that we have to do. In all of the issues of life, in all of the issues about which we're at loggerheads with one another and with the world, it is with God that we have to do. Now, this, of course, happens in a context, a context in which Isaiah describes the uniqueness of God, the nothingness of idols, and the exclusiveness of the salvation that God is proclaiming to the world. And some key verses, I think, back up or give you an idea of that overall background. If you look, for example, at chapter 44, verse 6, there you see underscored the uniqueness of God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Or look down to verse 9. And there in verse 9, we have a statement of how God feels about all the idols, all the things, the gods that people were worshiping around Him. Here is God's superiority. All who fashion idols are nothing. The people who make them are nothing. Uh, Your Redeemer, uh, sorry, and the things that they delight in do not profit, they are worthless. They're worthless. The people who make them are nothing. The things they make do not profit, they are worthless. Their witnesses, that is, the gods they make, neither see nor know that they might be put to shame. And you see what mind-stretching irony that God uses as He mocks the lifestyle and the ideas and the philosophy of the pagans. Whether your idol is material, something you make with your hands, or or mental, something you create with your imagination… It is a human work. That is all it is. It is a human product. That's all it is. And therefore it is liable to what humanity is heir to, in terms of its nothingness and its destiny. Now I want you to glance further down verse chapter 44 to verse 24. But well, here we have a summary statement that acts as the introduction to the next step in the movement of God's revelation through Isaiah. Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, and who spread out the earth by myself. This is a poem, of course, and as the poem progresses, it has an unfolding cumulative effect on us. I want you to see that as we go through that shortly. But notice here in verse 24… Here is a central declaration that is repeated over and over again. This little phrase, I am the Lord, with uppercase letters. I am the Lord, here in verse 24, in verse 3 of chapter 45, verse 5, and verse 6. I am the Lord. When you see those uppercase letters, it's translating a word sometimes transliterated into English as Yahweh known as Jehovah to a previous generation but summing up that distinctive revelation that was given to Moses you remember when God introduces himself as I am that I am I'm just the God who is I'm the God who is there that's I'm, I'm the God who is self-sufficient self-existent self-revealing I am Everything else is made, everything else is created, everything else is something that's been put together, but I just am, I exist in and of myself. This is God's personal name. When God says here, I am the Lord, in in the way it's printed here, it's more than just saying, I'm God, or I'm the master, or I'm the sovereign, or I'm the king. No, I'm the personal God who's introduced Himself personally to my own people, people I've called my own people. And in this one expression are captured the, the reality of God's involvement with His own people in the world, His commitment to His people, His covenant agreement with His people, a commitment that stretches throughout eternity from the past through the present, far into the future. And we begin to see that as it's displayed here. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Israel. Notice again, verse twenty-four, as he addresses them. I'm speaking to you. The you is singular, by the way, and the yours are single singular. The you and the you is singular, but it's addressed to a corporate body. He's referring to to Israel, the people, the people as a whole, as a corporate entity. He's talking to you, Israel, the people of God. And he is asserting his rights over them. Do you notice that? He is their Redeemer. He is your Redeemer. He is the one who formed them in the womb. He created them. He is the God of all things. He's not only the God of Israel, but He's the Lord who made all things everything you can imagine, everything you can imagine, the universe around you, the earth on which you sit this morning. It comprehends in Hebrew everything, the universe, the earth, everything that is made outside of God. He made it. He formed it. He shaped it. It is His. And He's asserting not only His rights, His rights, over his people, but he is stressing under, in particular, that they are his own possession. He has redeemed them, they are his own, He chose them, he formed them, he redeemed them, he created the universe, and he placed them in that universe. And he's asserting his rights over everybody else, whether they acknowledge his existence, whether they accept his rule or not. So let's look at the flow of the passage. He's revealing Himself. He begins with the past. In the past, He is the Creator. I am the Lord who made all things. You see the totality, all, He says. He says He acted alone. I myself alone did these things. I did these things by myself, that is, by my own initiative. I made the heavens and the earth, everything that is made, I made it. He is the Creator. And he is the governor. Look at verse 25. He is the governor. Not only did I make these things, but I frustrate. I frustrate the the signs of liars and make fools of diviners. I turn wise men back and make their knowledge foolish." Talking about the false prophets. They talk big. They gather a following. They boast in their abilities but they're constantly being frustrated by the Lord. The wise are those who don't make supernatural claims. They claim that by reason they can resolve the questions and solve the problems, and that they can access the data, that they can build their arguments, they can make their predictions and their prognostications, and they may draw some accurate conclusions, but in the end God says, I will frustrate the wise, even in their own wisdom. I frustrate the wise. But as well as those negatives, here is the God who does something very positive. Do you notice what He goes on to say? He confirms, verse 26, He confirms the word of His servant, probably Isaiah and the prophets. Confirms the word of His servant and fulfills the counsel of His messengers. So it's Isaiah and the prophets, those whom He has sent with a message. What does God say? I confirm their word. The God of Isaiah, you see, is not only a preacher, He's an apologist. He's not content merely to proclaim the Word of God to people through His servants, the prophets, but He has an eye to the many unbelievers that are around looking on and listening in, and He is always setting forth God's case for God. Proclamation and apologetics. Sometimes people say about these things, you know, well, we're all for proclamation, that's to do with revelation, but apologetics has to do with reason, and there's a sense that's right. But true apologetics arises from a reason baptized in the truth of revelation, a reason informed by, constrained by, and ignited by the truth of Scripture. God says, His Word through His servants, the prophets will be caused to stand. And thirdly, He is the revealer. He is the one who reveals a message to the prophets, who says, look at the middle of verse 26, who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. What is God saying to these people? Isaiah has spent a whole lot, lot of time telling these people that one day God is going to send the Babylonians and He's going to destroy Jerusalem and Judah. The city will be leveled, the the earth around it scorched by the invader. But He's also now begun to tell them that in the future there is going to be a return and a recovery and a restoration. There's going to be a movement of God in the beginning. There will be a renewal of their fortunes. And here, God announces it beforehand. They will return to Jerusalem. Their fortunes will be restored. And He reminds them, He reminds them in verse 27, that they know He can do this because in the past He did this. There was a time in the past when He said to the deep, that is to the sea, be dry. And all those Israelites with their families and all their accoutrements crossed over that Dead Sea. You remember the the Red Sea. They crossed from one end to the other in dry land by the mighty work of God. And when they came to the Jordan River, what did He do? He parts of the river. They're able to walk over the River Jordan on dry land into the Promised Land. He reminds them, aren't I the God who has always overcome every obstacle, every problem, every issue that faced you? Can't you believe that if I did that in the past, I'll do it in the future? I've told you that you're going to be deported to Babylon. I've told you that you will lose your land, that Jerusalem will be destroyed, that the the earth will be parched, scorched by, by the incoming enemy, and you'll find yourself under the authoritarian rule of the king of Babylon. Don't you think I can overcome that to bring you back to that place that I have promised to bless? Haven't I said to you that from Jerusalem, from Zion... The Word of God will go out into all the earth and nations will come to Zion to find their way and to find the message of life. Have I not said I'll do that? Do you think I have a problem doing that? Do you think if I didn't have a problem parting the sea and parting the rivers that I can't overcome the obstacles to bringing you back to Jerusalem? God is putting this before them. He is building His case before them. You see, there are two problems that Isaiah has shown that, the, that God needs to address if he's going to keep His word to these people in exile, and He is telling them ahead of time how God is going to do it. The problems were these. The problem was losing Jerusalem and Judea when they had been led to believe that in Jerusalem and in Judea the salvation of the world would appear. How can we get that back? There they are. In Babylon for seventy-plus years and they're virtually enslaved. They have no mobility, no ability to go back, no money to use, no means to rebuild a nation, no freedom. That was a problem. How is God going to do that? He's about to tell us. The other problem was the problem of the sin that had caused them to go into exile in the first place. What is God going to do about that problem? He is going to start telling us in greater detail in the chapters that follow in Isaiah here. But for the moment, there is the problem of the return. Before there can be a salvation from sin, there has to be a restoration of Jerusalem and the people going back there so Messiah can appear there. How is He going to do that? It's at this point, God Drops a bombshell, a bombshell. He's going to rescue them by means of a complete stranger, a foreigner. Listen to what he says, "I am the Lord." That's the background, remember. I am the Lord, who says of Cyrus, verse 28, "He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all." my purpose. I want you to notice that God drops this bombshell without any hesitation. He drops the bombshell without any hint in the text of any need to defend His assertion. It is remarkable, isn't it, that there is a one reason why unbelieving men have sought to attack the authenticity of the book of Isaiah. If there is one reason, one verse that has caused unbelieving men to feel they have to chop it all up, for which there is no basis in terms of any manuscript we are aware of, it's always been one book for as far back as we can go. And in spite of the internal linguistic evidence of its unity, and in spite of the coherence Of its message, and in spite of having dominical, that is our Lord's official attestation to it having been, having one author, Isaiah, in spite of all of that, if there is one reason unbelieving men have felt they could chop up this book, it is this verse. Why? Because they cannot believe that the God who decided before the foundation of the world there would be an Israel and a Babylon and a Persia, also decided there would be one individual called Cyrus that he would make king, and one individual to whom he would give the authority to let the people of God go back to Jerusalem, and he made Cyrus. Before he made him in the womb, he had chosen him. And he had formed his name and he had formed his personality and formed his character. Don't you think the God who did that before the creation of the world could let it slip to one of his prophets what his name would be? That's what God does here by giving the name to Isaiah. You have to find the explanation for why it is that the people of the Jews who through all of their history, all of their history, had been idolaters. There was never a moment in their history in which they had not been idolaters. They're going to exile because they have constantly been idolaters. They worship the God of Israel, but they worship all these other gods as well. You have to find an explanation of why it was that after the exile, it ended. It never, ever reared its head again. They were cured fully, finally, completely. Do you know why it was? Because they had the book of Isaiah. They had these words of God who explicitly, accurately. I mean, God is challenging them throughout this whole period. When, it, when Cyrus arises, God's words saying to them, Look, I've been telling you this. When the Babylonians attacked them, I told you this would happen. When the Assyrians came, I said this is the way it would work out. Can anybody else do this? Can any other god do this? It cured them of their idolatry once and for all. That is the only explanation for the transformation of Jews after the Babylonian exile. Here is this Word of God. It comes and it introduces this figure. He's already been alluded to earlier in the text, as the one called from the north and the east to terrify the nations and set His despairing people free. And so, it's got an apologetic value. God is putting it before us. Here I am, the God, the only God there is around who is able to forecast the name of somebody 150 years before He appears on the stage of history. This is God's argument for God. Do you understand? This is God's argument for God. Look at the flow of the passage. This is not an intrusion into the story. This this is part of the whole fabric of the argument that God is giving through Isaiah to the people of His day. It wouldn't work if it happened after the event. It only works if it happened before the event. The whole argument. But see, here's the problem. We have the problem of a supernatural thing. The people of Isaiah's day found this bombshell actually powerful in terms of its shock value, its shock value, because this Cyrus, who is, going to, who is announced as my shepherd, shepherd is a kingly word, a kingly description, it's a word that's going to be used about the Messiah, he's going to shepherd the people of God. He's described here as his anointed. Look at verse 1 of chapter 45. That is his Messiah. This Cyrus is a pagan idolater who has no interest in the God of Israel, who never took any pleasure in the God of Israel, who probably never, ever, ever got to read Isaiah's prophecy about him. So here's my first principle. you're writing notes, write this down. God reserves the right to use whoever He pleases to accomplish His purposes. This is where Cyrus steps in. This shocking news that this pagan emperor of Persia is God's Messiah. Now, in some senses, it shouldn't be shocking. God has already announced in chapter 40 through Isaiah that uh, Isaiah or Isaiah, I can't remember which one it is, uh, but one of those uh, pronunciations is the right one for here. Uh, those in, back in chapter 40, God reduces rulers to nothing, but He raises up whomever He pleases. Look again at chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to the, to the anointed, to His anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before Him. Notice The conquests, the achievements, the successes of this pagan ruler are not down to circumstantial effect, not down to historical chance, not down to superb skill. It is the providence and power of God. It is that God took Him, and the nations fell before Him because God was holding this pagan man's hand. Do you notice that? Not only that, it says, God goes before him to level the exalted places. He, he moves away all the obstacles to this man's advance in his career as a politician. He breaks in pieces doors of bronze, palaces, castles, strongholds are broken down in, before this great figure as he emerges to get, to get his day in the sun and he has given the treasures of darkness, the things that will be secreted away and squirreled away and hidden in, in vaults are, are exposed and they're taken, and he builds his treasury, and he becomes wealthy and he becomes great. And here's what God says to this man through the prophet, about this man. It is I, the God of Israel. That's how he knew him, God of Israel who call you by your name. I called you by your name before you were ever born, before you were around, and I said what I would do. It's written down. It's written down. I call you by your name for the sake of my servant, Jacob, and Israel, my chosen, for the sake of my people. I've chosen you. I'm going to work through you. I name you even though you don't know me. I want you to notice these things about this man. God reserves the right to use whoever He pleases to accomplish His purposes. Two things about this man, one, because he was the ruler of Persia, and Persia took over Babylon in a kind of aggressive coup. And uh, overwhelmed it, it meant that the people of the Jews were under his authority. He ruled over them. So he, he did what a Davidic king would do. He was ruling over God's people for that period. Not only that, when the time came, he was the one who came up with the idea of sending them back and rebuilding their temple. And he funded, as well as freeing them to go back, he funded the enterprise and he allowed it to happen. So he did two things that a Davidic king does. He ruled over God's people and he ensured the rebuilding of God's temple. So, even though he was a pagan king and an idolater with no interest in the God of Israel, nonetheless, God used him. If he can't find a useful instrument in his people, he will find a useful instrument in the world. And if his people don't listen to God's servants, the prophets… Sometimes His people have to listen to outside voices for God will be heard by His people. He will be heard by His people. Here's a second principle. The fact that God uses people to perform His will does not imply that those people are either willing or worthy to be so used. The fact that God uses people to perform His will, does not imply that those people are either willing or worthy to be so used. Look at verses 4 and 5. I name you, though you do not know Me. I equip you, though you do not know Me. This man does not know the Lord. I said he likely didn't even know about this prophecy. The titles that he's given, shepherd, anointed are honorary titles. They indicate His importance in the outworking of God's plan to get His people back to Jerusalem so that the Messiah can be born in Judah and can appear at a temple there in Jerusalem. In other words, the Bible is not really interested in Cyrus as a military leader, as a great leader. The only relevance this man has to God is the impact he has on his church in the world. You see, that's the thing we've got to get into our heads. We all know when we turn on our televisions all the great names of the world, the names that are known and familiar and and lauded and praised by the world, these great figures of the world, these great leaders of the world, the only relevance they have in God's economy is the impact they have or don't have, for good or for evil, on the church of God. Amen. Do you believe that God can use a pagan man like this? We, we discovered, I say we, I'm using that royal, we, we discovered a, a cylinder called the Cyrus Cylinder. I had absolutely nothing to do with the discovery of it, but we discovered the Cyrus Cylinder. And in that cylinder, it tells us that Cyrus was a worshiper of Marduk, who was the chief god of that region. That's who he believed in. So, although God may save only those who believe, God may use whomsoever He pleases. That's what uh, we need to get our heads around. There was a man called William Wilberforce. He was a A godly man, he hated the slave trade. He wanted to end the slave trade. He had the passion for it. What he didn't have were the political niceties to make it happen. But he had a friend who was well-placed in order to use his political skill in order to get some movement on the slave trade issue. The friend was named William Pitt. William Pitt the younger was the greatest prime minister that England ever produced and probably one of the few intelligent ones that they ever had. he was a very bright man. Uh, Churchill was bright in a kind of visceral sense. But uh, William Pitt really had a brain. He was a, a, a massive, had a massive brain, um, intellectual weight. But he was an unbeliever. He was an unbeliever. But William Pitt lended his support to William Wilberforce. And together, it was William Pitt in the end who got enough votes there who massaged the egos of people who were going to be hurt by the ending of this great economic force within British society. And in the end, he used him to bring an end to the slave trade at enormous cost to the British economy of the time, billions in billions, multiple billions in modern terms. Can God use an unbelieving man? Yes. Can God use an unbelieving movement? Martin Luther thought so. When Islam was sweeping across Europe, Martin Luther said of Islam, it is the rod of God against an unholy church. The rod of God against an unholy church. It would shock the Jews that God would use a pagan and an idolater to worship Uh, to work out His will in the world. Just as it would shock people in Jesus' day that it was Pilate and the religious authorities that worked out the will of God, which was that the Lord Jesus should be crucified dead and buried, and then raised from the dead. They did what God's hand and plan had determined to take place. Our confession puts it like this God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Whatever comes to pass. Well, this principle is established in the New Testament that God does what he does to the praise of his glorious grace and that He always acts according to His purposes. You read that in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, this principle is enlarged in verses 5 to 6 of of chapter 45. I am the Lord, He says, there is no other. Besides Me there is no God. I equip you that people will know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides Me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. God made the darkness. Then He made the light. He made everything that's made. God made it. In the most, in the greatest sense, God made it all. That's what God does. And He does it for His own ends. He names Him. He proclaims to Him that He is the only God And he speaks to him. Now, look at verse 9. Woe to them. I'm skipping things here because our time is rushing out. So, I'm being selective. All those really good ideas are just putting them to one side. If only you knew them, you would say, those are wonderful, Liam. But I can't tell you them. Sorry. Look at verse 9 again. Let's come to this. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthly pots. God is now in full dispute with His own people. The word woe, of course, is a serious word. It's a funeral cry, woe. It's a cry of judgment, a cry of damnation. It's a cry of grief, woe. You don't want that directed against you. Woe to Him. It underlines a seriousness. There were people who would question God's choice of Cyrus to accomplish God's purpose of restoration? There were people who would say, God, why? Couldn't you find a little Jewish boy somewhere and, and made him the king and 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 you know get, been at his right hand and caused him to be successful and caused him to overcome the Babylonians and get us back to Jerusalem that way? Couldn't that wouldn't that have been that would have been really good. We could have written histories about, about Him. And they were questioning what God was about. And so God underlines how their questioning is a symptom of their refusal to let God be God. Do you know when it all comes down to it, most of our problems are that we won't let God God be God. We want God to be like us. We want God to accommodate to our size, to answer our questions, to jump to our commands. We will not let God be God. And so, God reminds us of who we are. Do you notice what are we? We are simply, as individuals, a pot among earthen pots. He's talking about the ancient way of making pottery, just clay, forming it, shaping it, firing it. And He's saying, you know, that's all you are. You're made of clay, the dust of the earth. God made you. He shaped you. He formed you into the way and shape you are. And then He breathed into you the breath of life, and you live. He extracts that breath of life. What's left? Only the clay part. To disintegrate, dissolve. To nothing. That's all any of us ever are, clay pots among clay pots. And when we question God, do you see, we are forgetting who we are. Billions of us, little creatures inhabiting this planet, all of us made of common stuff. And yet we still arrogate to ourselves the right to question God. And they questioned God over the use of Cyrus. And it was the beginning, really. That questioning was the beginning of a mindset that would develop into the spirit that we find when Jesus arrived on earth. And He found among the Pharisees, the strict sect of the Pharisees, and later the Judaizers, the people who... uh, Moved among Christian groups and wanted to reconnect Christianity to Judaism in a closer way again. They were the people, you remember, who did not want Gentiles, Goyim, included in Israel. They wanted to preserve the purity of Israel, in spite of the fact that God had given through the prophets this constant, repeated refrain that He's going to gather his people from the nations, and join them to Israel. Israel would get greater and greater and greater and greater as Goyim, Gentiles, would come and join the Israel of God. You need to understand, maybe you're here this morning and you're a Jewish person. I'm not being critical of you as a Jewish person. What I'm saying is that we understand that any relationship we have with God is always a relationship with God through Israel we are the also-rans, if we're Gentiles, we've been added in. We've been added into the Israel of God, surely by the grace of God, not because we had anything to bargain with, but but by the grace of God, we have been joined to His Israel, His people. The gospel was for the Jew first, and we are the and also's, and also for the Gentiles. We value our heritage that goes back all the way to Abraham, and through Abraham to Adam, Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, he uses this very verse. When he's dealing with the questions of people who are, who are saying, you know, if, if God has determined what's going to happen, then, then what right then does He have to find fault in me? It's what's been determined. And he replies, he says, well, who are you, O man, reminding us of our clayness, reminding us of our, of our humanness? Who are you, O man? to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? Who are you to answer back to God? Has the potter, he goes on to say, no right over the clay, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You may struggle with the doctrine. But the reality is God is free to do as He pleases in His universe with His creatures. And whatever good He does for us, He does of grace alone and not because of anything we have to plead. You see, many of the people thought that when God brought them back to Jerusalem, there would be a second exodus, a water breaking from rocks and manna in the morning, and a figure like Moses who would lead them back. But instead, there was going to be a foreign tyrant with titles that they had reserved for their own Jewish Messiah, descended from King David. How could God do that? How could He do that? At that point, they fall into the common trap of humanity that will not let God be God. You know, theological impertinence is the blight of religion in every age. We think we know better than God. That's what lay behind the rewriting of theology in the nineteenth century. People like Schleiermacher in the nineteenth century wanted to make the gospel more accessible to the culture despisers of his day. He didn't think the gospel standing alone without his help could appeal to the culture despisers of his day. He wasn't himself, so Charles Hodge said, a man of faith, a man who would love to sit with his family around the piano on a Sunday evening singing the songs the hymns of the church but in his teaching he gave up so much of christianity in order that it might be accessible and attractive to the cultural despisers of his day and i think of one man who taught old testament taught biblical theology who Started off this way, trying to find a way in which we could make the Old Testament with all of its problems, with all of its challenges and its wars and all the rest of it, and find a way of looking at it and teaching it so that it didn't offend the cultured despisers of his day. And he wrote something recently, and one one of our elders sent me an email, and the title of his email was simply this, Sitting in the Seat of the Scoffers. He is so shifted that he scoffs at everything, everything that the Bible is saying, and it's, it's authority. Well, the last principle is this. God does what he does for the good of his people and the glory of his name, that the world might know that the Lord and the Lord alone is God. Look at verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen... Verse 6, the world may know, people may know from the rising of the sun in the west. God's calling of this man Cyrus is a great model and example to the world. It confounds, it confounds the expectations of the people of Isaiah's day and beyond. God stands there solitary. He stands alone. He stands and proclaims His name calls people to acknowledge His name. Why is this important? It's because the reason for so much angst in the world and the reason for so much dissatisfaction among people and the reason for war and oppression and arrogance is precisely this, that we do not know our Maker. We do not let God be God. And this Spirit, this Spirit that God is addressing here, woe to Him who strives with Him, who formed Him, was going to find its ultimate expression when God sent the answer, not to get Him back to Jerusalem, when God sent the answer as to how to get back to God. When He sent His Messiah, the same people who struggled against God using Cyrus would struggle against God using Jesus. Do you have an argument with God this morning? Do you have a controversy with your Maker? Let God be God and every man a liar. Let God be God in this church. Let God be God in your life. Let God be God in our theological colleges. Let God be God in the proclamation of His Word. Let God be God. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to embrace you in all your fullness in Christ. We pray in his strong name. Amen.